0: Hi everybody, it's Doctor B with Addiction Recovery. Uh, today we have Nicole, and her she is uh, pretty. She's from Real Talk Recovery. She has a really cool channel called Re- Real Talk Recovery, and she's all over the place. She does sort of medication-assisted treatment support for anybody that wants to reach out to her. And I'm going to be interviewing Nicole today a little bit about her polysubstance substance abuse history. Uh, she is absolutely amazing. Before we get into that, like usual, please, if you like the contents that we've been delivering, it's all educational, it's non-profit. click to subscribe, click the bell. Also, very recently, we had a really cool interview that came out two days ago on the channel LAHWF. It's a two-hour interview. Please go check that out. In addition, we have a Patreon account set up, and it all gets funded into our continued educational effort and supporting our substance abuse programs. Uh, Let's move on. Hi, Nicole, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, thanks, Dr. B.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today. Now, uh, I don't even remember how we got to know each other, uh, how I found your channel or you found my channel, but you have this wonderful channel, Real Talk Recovery, and uh, it pretty much documents your own history with medication-assisted treatment and substance abuse. But can you just go ahead and start, share a little bit about your own polysubstance abuse drug history?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I started, first of all, I started using drugs when I was probably about 17 years old, when I was in high school. And, you know, I didn't have like a bad childhood. My parents are still married. I came from a pretty... uh, Stable environment, like family wise. I have two little sisters, and it just all started out with me when I was younger, kind of like peer pressure and wanting to fit in. And I tried smoking weed for the first time and drinking. And the weed wasn't so much of a problem. I never really got big into smoking marijuana, but drinking became a problem right away. And I was a, every weekend drinker after every football game. Um, even before games. And then I started, what happened was it kind of introduced me into people that were using other uh, drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine. And I can remember I was at a party with a bunch of like cheerleader and football guys, and we were all hanging out. And there was this guy I was really close to He had cocaine. And that was the first time I tried cocaine was when I was 17. And I can remember the, it was like, oh, wow, this is great. Because it gave me energy. I felt like I could like do everything I needed to do, and it helped me stay skinny. Like I felt that like I w- that non I didn't want to eat because of the stimulant properties from the cocaine. And um, where I grow up at, we live in Arkansas. It's like a you know the Bible Belt. It's a southern state, and here where I live, a lot of people make methamphetamine. And we lived in a rural area. Now it's not rural, but when we were growing up there, we only had two neighbors and it was like all fields and stuff. So there was trailers of people and they would cook methamphetamine and then these people's kids would go to school. And so there was a couple of kids that I went to school with that their parents were making methamphetamine. And so when I got old enough, probably about 18 years old, once I graduated, I started hanging out with these different kids meet them in college, met them from being in high school together. And I started using methamphetamine, but, um, I always used multiple substances all at one time. Like I would use methamphetamine and I would stay up for like three, four or five days at a time. And then I would want to have something to come down, so I would take opiates or benzodiazepines. Let me slow you
0: down, sorry. Part of the problem is I'm a clinician, so for me, the devil's in the details. I'm gonna back you up a little bit here. So, uh, the alcohol, what age did it start?
1: 17.
0: Oh, that started, and uh, marijuana, what age did that start?
1: 17. Oh,
0: so it was all 17, and the first time with cocaine was 17. And this was, you were probably a junior in high school. Yes. And you started initially uh, uh, during football games, Friday nights, etc. And it started to escalate to more drinking and marijuana. And then once you started the cocaine, uh, after the first time, you said it was a cheerleader party. What happened after that with the cocaine? Did it... Did you start using it regularly every weekend? When did meth come into the picture? And I only care because I just, I'm trained as a clinician, so these things matter to me.
1: Oh yeah, Um, so with the cocaine, I was dating a guy. He was the quarterback of the football team. And his, like his friends were older than us and so they would get it. So it became like a weekend warrior kind of thing. Like we would get high on the weekends and then I would go back to school. Well then one day, he brought it to school and we met up inside the, um, what is it, um, where the girls change out the, the gym, like the locker room. And we met in there and there they were connected. Like there was a guy's side and a girl's side and then the hallway was in the middle. And so he snuck over to my side and brought some lines and we did lines in the, in the locker room together. And so then he started bringing it to school. And so I started using it at school. Now, it wasn't until after I graduated my senior year that I got into using methamphetamine. And that's when methamphetamine, I kind of like said, "Uh, cocaine's not accessible to me anymore because I'm not seeing this guy that I go to school with. And then I started using methamphetamine. Smoking it? Smoking it and snorting it. I hadn't started injecting until I was about 23 or 24.
0: And uh, were you also dabbling in opiates during this time?
1: Yes, Oxycontin.
0: What was your drug of choice?
1: If I had to choose, it would have been methamphetamine.
0: Okay. And uh, uh, what happened at 20, and uh, after high school, did you go to college? Or did you start working? Tell me what happened.
1: Well, I, I had been working since I was about 15 years old. And so I've always had like a little, I was um, a car hop at Sonic while I was in high school. Then after I graduated, I got a job working for JCPenney in the cosmetic department, and I started going to college. I signed up for college, and Dr. B, I didn't even make it a whole year. I was smoking and snorting meth so much that I wasn't going to my classes. And when I would go, I was just so tired from being up for so long and then trying to make it into class in the morning. I was just, I failed out, failed out.
0: You, during this time from uh, 18 to 23, or even 23, yeah. did you recognize there was a problem or, or was it even there in your consciousness or your awareness of yourself?
1: No, no, not at all. Because I was like, at that time, I was still having so much fun doing it. Like, I liked leap. I knew there was a problem in the sense that my mom and dad were, were kicking me out. Because I wasn't coming home at night, I was staying gone for days and days and days at a time. I can remember my dad like taking my car from me because he had co-signed for it, and like telling me that he wasn't going to give me my car back unless I stayed home, came came home by 10 o'clock each night. You know, gave him my paychecks when I got paid, and so my parents knew there was a problem, but I was still like, I still thought I had control over any everything, you know.
0: Okay, and uh, so at 23, why did you switch over from smoking and snorting to injecting?
1: Okay, so I had been hanging around in this trailer where this guy was cooking methamphetamine, and it was me, him, one of my girlfriends that I had been friends with since I was in third or fourth grade, and then a couple other, other girls that we went to school with and a couple other guys that we went to school with and everyone was going in the back bedroom and they were going in the bathroom or the back bedroom and then they would all come out and I would be in the front in the living room either smoking doing hot rails or um snorting the methamphetamine and they would come out of that back room and I had no idea I had never even seen a needle before in 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 like in the in the drug world like that. I had had my blood drawn and stuff like that when I went to the doctor, but like I'd never seen it like out there. And so they would come out from this back room and everybody I could just tell that they were doing something that they were doing more than I was doing and I could tell in their faces how much higher they were than I was. Like they would come out, their cheeks would be blood red flushed, their necks would be flushed, their eyes would be like huge pupils dilated, like you could just see that they're, they were like, it, something was going on. So I went back there and I was like, what's going on? I want to know what y'all are doing. And I walked in and my friend was shooting up. And I sat down with her and I said, I want to, I want to do this. And they said, no, 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 you do not want to do this. It will take your life. And I can remember her and him sitting there and trying to t- say, no, Nicole, don't do this. Don't try this. And I I insisted, and I said, if you don't do it for me, I'm going to try and do it myself, and I'm going to end up hurting myself. And um, that's when my friend did it for me. And after that, it was hooked automatically.
0: Were you working at the time?
1: Yep, I was working at—at that time, I had just left J.C. Penny, and I was working at a place called Shoe Carnival as the um, floor supervisor.
0: So, uh, and you were still drinking alcohol, smoking pot— And you were doing recreational Roxy's. Yeah. And so what happened after that night when you uh, did the intravenous route for the first time? What significant change was there in your life that you can really look back and tell me about to the extent that you're comfortable?
1: I locked myself in the room, in the bathroom that night, away from everybody after I had injected it for the first time. And I can remember this because it was probably the most like, It was probably one of the lowest points of my addiction, but early on. And so I locked myself in the bathroom and there was underneath the sink, there was all these spoons where people would leave their rinses there. They would leave their cotton and then the residue from where they were shooting meth up. And so it was all laying underneath there. And I went through and I grabbed all these spoons and I rinsed them all and was trying to get the residue of the methamphetamine so I could use more. And I sat there and I tried to shoot myself up for like three or four hours locked in that bathroom by myself, trying to learn how to register and hit myself and, you know, make the blood come back and hit my vein because I had never done it before. My friend did it for me. And that it was that moment when I was laying in there on that bathroom floor, digging around in other people's biohazard, you know, blood and whatever else was in those spoons that I was like, wow, I, this is crazy. But I didn't even realize it was crazy. Now I look at it and I remember that. And I, I remember being so desperate to get that feeling that I had just got again, that I would do anything to try and get it that right away. And, um, that's the way it was for me from that point on with the, with the needle, with any drug that I can in- inject cocaine, methamphetamine, or opiates. I was desperate. I would fight over the, the syringe. I would fight over the bag of dope. Like I had to go first. It was like, I was so desperate to get that feeling. And after that, I, I chased that, that rush for so long. And, um. It wasn't even six months after the first time I injected methamphetamine that I was arrested for possession of a controlled substance and put on probation by the state of Arkansas.
0: During that six months, uh, tell me how the, uh, did the opiates develop into heroin yet?
1: No. Okay, so here where I live, um, when I was getting high, heroin wasn't something you could find around here. You could find it. But it was in these little capsules and it was the powder. They, um, it was always Roxy's, Dilaudid, Morphine, Oxycontin, Oxymorphone. And here where I live, it's a retirement community. A lot of people come to Hot Springs, that's where I was living, to retire. And a lot of elderly people have lots and lots of pills. So they'll sell them to help with their income because they don't make enough. They're on like a fixed income. So we would always have bunches and bunches of pills. It wasn't until about 2011 or 12 that I ever even tried heroin for the first time.
0: When did you first realize it was actually a problem after that first night of using intravenous?
1: When I was in prison, after I had tried to stay sober, through, because they put me on probation for that charge, I caught a possession of a controlled substance charge. I had methamphetamine. I had a needle. I had all kinds of stuff in my car. They put me on probation. They said, you got three years probation. Um, and if you're good, you can get off early, you know? And so I was like, okay, I got to stay sober. I got to put these drugs down. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to stay sober. They put me on probation (laughs) and Dr. B. I tried every combination of not everything I could do to not, not do drugs. I tried drinking only I tried drinking and taking pills and I was failing all these drug tests because I couldn't figure out like how much time it would take me to get my system cleaned out and they would randomly drug test me. So that's when I went to prison over failing multiple drug screens. They, they sent me, they kept me on um, probation for almost a year, about 11 months and I failed every single drug screen except for the first one they gave me. And then they sent me to prison for a year. And that's, I remember being locked up in prison, and like, oh my God, I'm in prison because of my addiction. I'm in prison because I'm I'm using drugs instead of staying sober.
0: Was that the first time it really sunk in?
1: I feel like that was the first time that I ever had such a consequence that it like, that I was, I was stuck there for a whole year. Like I had to write, there, I had a calendar above my bunk and I had to cross out the days as the days would go by. Then I remember my mom and dad coming to visit me on my first visitation. It was a Saturday and they sat down and my dad sat across from me and he was like, I don't understand why you just can't quit. And, um, and my mom was sitting there and they were both so upset. They had to come and visit me every Saturday. And so maybe it was even, I even realized it then when I was sitting there with my parents. My dad had always said this to me over and over and over again. Why can't you just quit? Why can't you just quit? So I always knew that I couldn't quit because I had tried so many times. Even though like, I didn't, I didn't want to think I had a problem, I suppose, but it wasn't something that was negatively affecting me until I got the consequences for it, which was going to prison.
0: Did you use in prison?
1: Well, hmm, the first um, seven or eight months I was there, I stayed sober, and then I met this girl. We'll call her T. And I met this girl T, and her mom used to smuggle hydrocodones into her um, through the visitation. And so, me and T had became really good friends, and she told me about it. And so, you know, it. I started taking hydrocodones while I was in prison, and it was so bad because I knew that they could come and drug test me, and then I would get time. I would get in trouble, I could get uh, disciplinary, I could get time added on to my sentence, and I was still taking the chance to take these hydrocodones every Saturday on visitation.
0: How old were you about this time, 25? Yep. Did you, and I understand uh, this is a few years ago, one of the things I note here is that there was no really self-understanding of addiction in any kind of formal way and it was just uh, a mysterious devil to your uh, family as well. It seems to me that everybody was kind of like, what's going on, Even including yourself? It seems like there was a very childish, innocent naivete to the devil you were dancing with. Is that, is that a good description of all of this?
1: Absolutely. Because, you know, my my parents were not, they didn't drink or smoke or anything like that. My dad had dabbled with like cocaine and marijuana when he was a young kid, but he even told me stories. He was like, you know, the minute uh, you guys were born, I said, I got to get, I got to do what I got to do. I got to take care of these kids. And it was, that, that was that. Now addiction uh, runs like heavy on my mother's side. Like her brothers and sisters have all struggled with cocaine addiction, crack addiction, um, alcoholism, but my family didn't know ha- they didn't understand it. Like my mom and dad had no idea what to do. And at the same time, while I was actively using at a young age, my sister, Michelle was also, so you had me and my sister, we are like 18 months apart running the streets together. And then my sister is also bipolar. So my parents were preoccupied with that because they were, my sister was in and out of the mental institution because they couldn't figure out what was wrong. She was, skipping school. She was getting kicked out of school. And so while they were trying to get my sister reined in, I was kind of dipping out the back door and doing what I was doing on my own. And they kind of, it wasn't their fault at all, but they didn't know what to do. They didn't even understand how to, how to start helping me. And it wasn't until I went to prison that my mom started going to Al-Anon and like learning about addiction. And then when I came out of prison and I tried to stay sober and relapse, they wouldn't let me come home. And they told me, my mom was like, I'm detaching from, I'm, I'm detaching from you with love. I was like, you what? And she had learned this in Al-Anon. And so they never let me come back after that. They wouldn't let me come back home. So I moved here to where I live now and I lived in halfway houses. I lived in treatment centers. Um, I lived with friends on their couches, you know, until until I got pregnant with my son, and then life really got serious.
0: Now, uh, uh, real quick, when did the uh, intravenous uh, uh, opiate start—heroin or what, what, whatever else? Well,
1: I had right after I started injecting methamphetamine, I had tried um, injecting opanas, but it wasn't something that I started doing every day. I was really on this methamphetamine kick for a long time. It wasn't until i paroled out from prison and I moved here to where I live now and I was living in a halfway house. I relapsed after staying sober for nine months and that's when I shot up Roxy's for my first time. And after that, that's when I start, I tried heroin, but it was always like, I probably shot up heroin like maybe 50 times. It was always Roxy codones. Um, The 30 milligram Roxy's because I had a drug dealer that I, ever since I moved here, I knew him. And so he would always have them and he would let me like, he would front me all the time. He would let me pay him back when I would get paid for my job. And for the most part, I tried to to stay employed and keep that paycheck coming. But eventually, I, I lost everything. I lost my job. I lost my car, everything.
0: How many times have you been in any kind of formal treatment?
1: I've been to rehab five times,
0: five times. That's a detox residential IOP kind of thing.
1: Yep. Uh, I've been to IOPs like there probably like, I've been to just like residential treatment five times. I've been to IOP like a bunch of times, you know, six or seven times because I would go into treatment and then I would go into the IOP and then I would relapse. And then I would come back and they would let me go through IOP first before they would you know say hey maybe you need to go back into residential because here where i lived um i i had made friends with a lot of the people that worked at the treatment center that is prevalent here and so they always wanted to see me do good they always they were like you have so much potential nicole you could do this you're so smart you could and they would try to help me and they would give me second chances that they would let me come back if I failed a drug screen, they would send me to the treatment center for two weeks and then let me come back into the halfway house. And, and I kept on, kept on doing it. I kept on relapsing.
0: Were you in touch with family that whole time? Or uh, what, what was your support group in town where you're at? It's the same town where you live now, right? And this is, a, yes. this is away from where your parents live, correct?
1: Right. My mom and dad live about 30 minutes away. So my support system here, it was just me. It was me and then the friends that I made in treatment and my sponsor. And um, so it was just people that I was making friends with. My mom and dad were about 30 minutes away, which I would talk to them on the phone and I'd talk to my sisters on the phone, but they weren't right here with me.
0: I know you are on medication assisted treatment and uh, MAT. Um, What role has that played in your recovery and uh, was that significant in you Getting Clean and Staying Clean. Can you tell us a little timeline about that and how that kind of weaved into this story that you're trying to lay out for us? And I've heard a lot of your story, uh, much of it, some of the stories uh, on your channel, you have this great, great uh, video thing that you did on uh, when you lost your kids and then how you got them back. In fact, I make a lot of my clients, the female ones that are in the same boat, I make them watch that uh, video that you made. I don't, you, you make a lot. So it was, it's one of the ones that I was thought it was powerful. But in general, how, you know, how did medication-assisted treatment and Suboxone play a role into this whole narrative that you're laying out for me and did it play a significant role in you eventually getting clean and staying clean and building everything back up from there? I had
1: tried so many times to get sober and I was really big into, I was big into Alcoholics Anonymous because that was the fellowship that was taught to me in all these treatment centers, which was amazing. The 12 steps are awesome. I love them. But every time I would try to get sober, I would make it for, I've never made it a year. I would make it nine months. I would make it six months. I would make it three months. And then I would, stop I, and most of the time I can look back and I can realize that hey you stopped going to meetings or you stopped calling your sponsor or I just wanted to get high and something would happen and I would I would go out and use and so I'd never had any like year long sobriety stints you know and so in 2012 um I met my husband and we were both in our active addiction and he was a lot better off though in his life than I was he had support from his family and he had a place to live and he had money and he had a car and a job. And so I was sleeping on my friend's couch when I met him. And when I met him, he rescued me. He said, Hey, get off this couch, come stay with me. You're going to be all right. And you know, we, we became connected. We never left each other's side. Well, we ended up getting pregnant and we were so bad in our active addiction that, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I thought I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to have this baby. And, um, we had a big meeting with his parents and my parents, and we decided we were going to have the baby and, um, we were to do this. And I didn't stay sober. I used the whole time I was pregnant with my son. Um, and the way I justified it in my mind was, I'm not going to use any opiates or benzos. I'll just use methamphetamine. So I tried my hardest to stay away from opiates and benzodiazepines and just use methamphetamine. And I know that sounds disgusting and I am so ashamed of it. Like I think about, I think about it all the time and I think about how grateful I am that my little boy is okay. And so the whole time I was pregnant, I was in my act of addiction. So when I gave birth to my son, he came out perfect. And, um, I was like, my son came out perfect. I get to take him home. I'm never going to use again. And I breastfed for three months and then I relapsed and I relapsed for that next year. And my Nathaniel was about to be one year old and my best friend called DHS on me. And they came to my door. They drug tested me. They drug tested Neil and they decided to remove our son from our care. Well, I went straight into treatment because I was like, "I can't let this happen. My son cannot be taken away from me like this is what I never want- I always said I would never let something like this happen. You know that was my one thing that I was better than that. I could never let my son get taken away and um I went into treatment and I came out, and I can remember the day Neil picked me up from the thirty day rehab. I wanted to get high so bad. I wanted to go straight to my dealer and get like five Roxy 30s and shoot them up right then. And Neil looked at me and he said, I went and got on Suboxone. And I remember I was so mad at him because I thought that Suboxone was this horrible medication that kept you high. And ever since the day I got put on Suboxone, I have not relapsed. I have not, I mean, it's been amazing, but that's, I've never had any kind of success with my recovery. in, in terms of staying sober until I got put on maintenance medication and I've stayed sober for almost five years. In July, it'll be five years, so four and a half years.
0: A lot of stigma you deal with this medication, huh?
1: Yes. Um, I remember when I first started sharing that I was on Suboxone because I've always, ever since I've gotten sober, I always wanted to help other people because I struggled for so long and I would see people and I would hear them tell their stories and I would think that's what I wanna do. I wanna be able to help people by telling my story. And so the minute I got one year sober, my sponsor said, hey, you can start sharing your experience, strength and hope. And so I started sharing my experience, strength and hope. But I'm one of those people, like I can't leave nothing out. I'm telling the whole story. And so I started sharing about being on maintenance medication, how it saved my life and how being on maintenance Doing therapy and doing my 12 steps has been like the combination that has finally worked for me. And the kickback that I got from other addicts was unbelievable. I couldn't believe how many people told me, well, you're not sober. You're not in recovery. Why are you even sharing? Why are you sponsoring people? You can't do that. You're on Suboxone. And um, I thought, you know what? This is BS. I'm going to start my own community of people for people that are just like me who are on maintenance, who want to be sober, who want to help others and who want to do the right thing. And um, I started sharing even more. I said, screw y'all. You know, Whatever you can think what you want to think, but at the same time I knew that I was going to have to learn everything I could about Suboxone. So that way, when these people came at me and they said, oh, well, you're still high or yada, yada, yada. I would be able to say, no, this is what it is. This is how this medication works in my, in my body. And this is how it, how I'm thriving with it. You know? And so I tried to learn as much as I can could. I started reading up on addiction. I started asking so many questions to other people that were on, um, Suboxone. And that's when I started saying, you know what? I can't worry about what other people think about my recovery because all my life I've worried about what, what everybody else thought and all my life. I was always trying to, to fit in with everybody else or to, to impress everybody else. And it was like, for once in my life, I felt good. I felt happy. I felt like I was doing the right thing for me. And why was I going to let all these people's opinion change my mind? And so I just said, screw it. And you know, my husband and I, we have our son back. We're sober. We just, I just bought and ate a $200 go-kart. Back in the day, I would have taken that $200 and bought a bag full of pills and some syringes. And I would have went and hit out and shot all that dope up. But no, I went out and bought my son the most amazing Christmas. I got bags of stuff underneath the tree. I'm not looking to go pawn it. And that's what I would have done before. I would have been struggling this time of year. But this time, right now, I was prepared. I had money in the bank to be able to do a Christmas for my family. That ne- I've never been able to do that.
0: You know what kind of blew me away is uh when you were telling me the kind of initial reaction you got from the community when they found out uh, you were on Suboxone, Uh it's insightful, it's uh, uh, courageous, and it's brilliant that you were... Uh, you had so much confidence and you also had so much wit about you that you're like, uh, no, I'm not off. You're all wrong. And you went about this and kind of recreated your own reality and did your own education and have become such a, you know, outstanding flagship for people on this medication because, uh, 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 I mean, your channel is... I mean, I, I listen to a lot of what you say and every once in a while I'll see a question on there. I'm like, oh, let me make sure... I'll be, you know, the doctor. I mean, I'll be, I'll be looking. Let me see what uh, Nicole said. And most of your answers are spot on. I mean, I, I think they're better than most clinicians in this area. So, uh, uh, yeah. And I know the work that you do on the people that you support and how hard you work. Um, for those people that are watching out there, um, you know, there's a lot of people struggling with poly substance abuse in the same way you did. And I think. Uh, your story is remarkable and it's truly testimonial and it just shows you that there's hope and there's true recovery because you've got to remember uh, the view for most of my life and even out there today in America is there is no cure and there is no fixing drug addiction and you know I completely disagree with that and you are a real life living breathing example of victory and doesn't mean it's over, and it doesn't mean you ever stop. What advice would you have for people? Because you know, a lot of people kind of come on my channel, a lot of people are shy about where they're at, and there's a lot of polysubstance abusers, and there's a lot of opiate meth abusers. Uh, Give me, give us some words of wisdom. Give them, tell them, uh, give us something.
1: If I had to say one thing to anybody that was out there that was struggling still. I would tell them to, Stop listening to what their mind is telling them. Stop listening to that voice in their head that says, I can do this on my own. I don't need any help because that's, that's the farthest thing from the truth. That was the hardest thing I ever had to realize is that I could not help me. I spent over 12 years trying to help myself and kept going back and forth. And so the best thing I could ever tell anyone to do is to reach out to somebody for help call your local treatment center, reach out to Dr. B, reach out to me and ask for help. And if you go and you get put on maintenance medication, never listen to what another addict has to say about you being on medication assisted treatment. It. (laughs) Last time I checked, we were all just a bunch of drug addicts trying to stay sober one day at a time. And now you got all these drug addicts acting like they're doctors. That's the one thing that I cannot believe sometimes is how When we get sober, we think we know it all. I don't know anything. All I know is that this medication has helped me to stay sober today. And I'm hoping tomorrow that it'll do the same. And I'm working my hardest on doing the next right thing. Talking about how I feel. I don't keep things bottled up inside anything. I don't keep secrets anymore. If I'm struggling with something, I say it. Like I would keep these secrets bottled up and tucked away in my little pocket. And I would think, nobody will ever know about that i'll be just fine and um that really held me back from succeeding for a long time um that pride and then that secret that shame you know and there's nothing to be ashamed of if you need to get on maintenance medication in fact i think that a lot of people should be encouraged to do that to transition and then be on the medication um be in therapy see their doctor and 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 work until they get their They're they're self-stabilized, and then they can get off, you know, taper down. I think if you did it like that and had people on for a certain amount of time, and you know what, I wouldn't even say a certain amount of time, a certain amount of time that works for them, because for each person, it's different. You know, it could take one person three months to get their life back together and to feel confident in their recovery. It could take another person two years. It's taken me every bit of four and a half years to get to the point where I actually feel good about my taper that I'm doing now and um I had to take all that time I had to so much healing I had to do like internally emotionally like I was so insecure and I didn't think I was worth anything and it wasn't because my parents didn't tell me I was it was just because I did these I did these bad things for so long that when you don't do good it affects you and so now I do these good things and it helps with my confidence. It helps with my self-esteem. It helps with my self-love. But when you're constantly shooting up, stealing, lying, cheating, committing adultery, all these things, that weighs down on on your heart, you know, so when you get sober, you have to work towards doing these good things to build yourself back up.
0: Nicole, you speak, uh, you're courageous and uh, it's kind of funny because uh, you speak, Speak words of deep wisdom about substance abuse and recovery. And what's interesting as I hear what you're saying, everything you're saying is you're speaking truth. And it's counterculture and counter-revolutionary. And, you know, if more people listen to the kind of words that you're saying and the kind of work you do on your channel, I think a lot of lives would be saved. Uh, And it's kind of nice to see this kind of movement growing within the substance abuse community, both the users and hopefully the practitioners because uh, we need a lot of compassion, we need a lot of professionalism, we need a lot of love, but we also need a lot of education and you are really, really speaking uh, truth to power in that sense. Uh, You are educating and I know how many people you've helped. Um, I don't know how to thank you for coming on here and sharing with us, Uh, guys. Nicole's channel, I'm a real fan, and I don't say this lightly, it's real talk recovery. She does multiple things. One, it's a general support group. She does things throughout the week, all week. She documents her own story along the way, and that's both, in some ways, empowering because there's a community and connectedness, but it's also educational because I'm really blown away by this young lady's insight into the medication management and she shares everything she goes through. Three, she brings on a lot of different guests on her channel, and they share their story, which is both empowering and educational. And she brings on professionals at times, including myself or whatever that's worth, and I try to answer questions. So please, please go on, subscribe to her channel. She's amazing. Nicole, thank you so much. Uh, It's very humbling to have you here with us and share your story. Um, Guys, please go ahead. And also, don't forget, again, subscribe to our channel if you like what you're getting. Ring that bell, and we will see you all next time. Uh, Nicole, thank you again so much, and it was an absolute pleasure. Thank
1: you so much. I feel honored. Thank you.